Hey, what's happening, everybody? You're listening to another episode of the Super Mercado Brothers Video Game Music Podcast. Thanks so much for joining us. This is a podcast where we share and discuss the very best in video game music. My name is Carl Brueggemann. And I'm his brother, Will Brueggemann. We have a really exciting episode today, and... You know, on today's episode, I really feel like, Carl, you are the master. I am the pupil. (laughs) I will be sitting back and I will be learning from you um, on this episode. I think Carl (laughs) is going to take the lead today because we are about to embark on a two-part series of episodes. Two-part episode. How fun. Yeah, focusing on drums and percussion in video game music. Obviously a huge topic, so there's so much to cover. Well, it's cool, and Will had the idea of how exactly we would divide this up into two parts. So the name of this episode is Drums, and yes, there's an exclamation point there. Part one, uh, basically what we're doing is this part one episode is going to be fake drums. Everything back from the NES days, uh, maybe all the way to the GameCube, right? Fake drums in video game music. And then part two, which will be our next episode, is going to be all about real performed drums. Uh, so... You know, there's you really we could have a playlist just about NES tracks that have good, you know, noise drums or sample drums. We could have a Genesis playlist. Uh, this is just a very small selection of outstanding drum tracks for video games. We could have made it a lot bigger, but I'm hoping that we can expand our conversations today uh, and just talk about why are drums special? What do they bring to music? How are they used in video game music? They might be a little different. So I'm really excited for a lot of the discussions today. Me too. Um, what you guys heard playing in was um, kind of an edit I made of Spark Mandrill from Mega Man X, actually starting off with that really infamous drum fill. <laughs> that usually happens at the end of a loop. Uh, but man, what a great way to start off today. The first thing I did want to say... Uh, Today is that Will is really excited because just yesterday he had a really exciting opportunity, a recording session. So I thought, Will, we could shoot the breeze just for a couple minutes and tell our listeners about what, what did you do yesterday in L.A.? So um, it was it was really cool. Uh, as part of my thesis for um, grad school, we had a recording session at the Newman scoring stage at 20th Century Fox, like the uh, studio. Um, And it was uh, unbelievably amazing. (laughs) It was so (laughs) cool. We got to record with a pretty big size orchestra, like 75, maybe 80, 75 to 85 musicians in this orchestra. We did it striped. So we recorded strings in the morning and winds and Mm. brass in the afternoon and evening. But we were there from like 9am to like 10pm. It was a it was a really long day because we had (laughs) a lot of music to record. But oh my god, it was it was so magical. And yeah, I I I was just really emotional the whole day Mm because I felt so proud of all my friends and all of the work that they'd put into and I I really want to share some of the music that they wrote, especially, you know, my friend. We should do that eventually. Maybe we could do some sort of original showcase that is expanded. Oh, yeah. Well, and I've told you about, and I think you got to meet uh, Dylan, um, Mm -hmm. and he's someone who has uh, sensibilities that I think would be very much appreciated by people in our community because he wrote a piece that was so Joe Hisaishian, so like Ori in the blind forest, like just very cool, gorgeous stuff. Yeah. It was, that's probably what made me the most emotional is just hearing that piece. And I still, I've had his melody in my head, like well, what day. an awesome opportunity. I can't wait to hear the the recording, and I'm sure that we'll be able to share at least one of those recordings on the podcast eventually, so look forward oh, yeah. to all of our listeners. Oh, and the last thing I forgot to mention is that uh, it was engineered and is going to be mixed by the legendary Dennis Sands, who, among other things, you know did worked on like back to the future and wow. he's one of those legends who's like worked with every single person in that is the whole so amazing. Film music. One other thing I wanted to say before we dive in, I didn't want to forget, we have a really fun intermission segment uh, on today's episode that's not really related to drums. Sometimes we like to do those. We've done a few of these intermission segments before. Uh, This one is actually from Becca, a good friend of the Supermarcado Brothers uh, and a member of our Discord community. Uh, She is a music teacher, and so she's going to be talking a little bit about learning and music and VGM. And so look forward to that segment in the middle of our episode to kind of break things up. 
Okay, so like I said, we played in with Mega Man X. Um, we're gonna get we're gonna get back to the Super Nintendo eventually today, so we can we can talk about the Super Nintendo in a little bit. But why don't we start off our playlist, which is a very small playlist today. Uh, we have two uh, a play in and a play out, and then we also have eight other tracks. Uh, we're starting off on the NES, and I couldn't resist playing two examples of the NES because, like to me, that's one of the most exciting things when it comes to fake drums and video game music is how they were able to achieve that on that really primitive hardware. So let's play a slightly earlier example for the NES, I believe 1989 here. This is from Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. It's the title screen, a really iconic drum track for video games. This is composed by Jun Funahashi. Here we go. guys are listening to title screen from tmnt for the nes composed by funahashi and i am bringing up the volume of the drums a little bit here uh later on in our playlist for a super nintendo and a genesis example uh, eventually what i did is i faded way down all the other elements and faded up the drums so that we can hear even more clearly later on today uh the drums because that's what we're talking about today we're talking about drums and we're really trying to listen to all these tracks in a different way one of my favorite things about this podcast is how we have a topic and it recontextualizes how we listen to the pieces uh, for Will and myself and hopefully for all of you. So I'm listening out for the drums today. I, I kind of do that already a lot, but <laughs> I'm doing that especially today. This is a really good early example of NES drums. Uh, why don't we start off, Will, what do you think of the tone of these drums? You have that iconic Konami kick drum sample, which is, it's like, oh, is that a kick drum? Oh, yeah, I guess it is. It's its one of those things you got to use your imagination for. But what do you think of the sound of the drums here? Well, to me, this is a quintessential use of the DPCM sample channel, which yeah. was often used for drums. Um, we've explored mm-hmm. many examples, creative uses of the DPCM for pitched things, um, like electric which bass Which we might get to <laughs> uh, next. But what is so incredible about this whole track, and I think it's personified by what is happening in the drums, is just how musical and raw and rugged and like acoustic sounding everything is. And I don't mean yeah. acoustic in the sense of like, this would definitely be, you know, distorted, amplified electric guitar rock music. But I just mean like not digital bleeps and it sounds bloops. Like a like band. It, evokes, it yeah. sounds like an NES band here. Totally. And the, the bed of all of that is the drums. I mean, it starts off the song with a bang. It's really rocking. You know, there's something really advantageous about the NES is the noise channel. There's not a lot of musical things that, that it's going to be helpful for. But one thing that is super helpful is for cymbals, hi-hats, crashes, shakers, that type of a percussive element. The noise channel is perfect for that, and so it's not surprising that that's one of the most common uses of the noise channel on NES is to kind of add to the drum beat. Yeah, totally. And it's it's so interesting to hear an example of something like this that it's not only well composed, but mm-hmm. it's so well implemented. And I think that's something that just consistently sets Konami above a lot of the other studios at the time is their music was so meticulously composed to have a very performed live band quality, but it was also so meticulously programmed. Yeah. Like the NES never sounds more expressive than it does here. All the instrument switching. I mean, it's, it's really pulling out all of the stops that are possible, which there are very few. Yeah. It's very exciting. It's a good technical showcase, but the thing that I love maybe most about about it, and especially in today's context, is how tasteful the drum part is. Um, it could have been a little more flashy, um, but it's definitely exciting enough. It's There are some early VGM tracks where the drums are very lame. I, I can't remember what soundtracks, but there's certain soundtracks where I remember Will would always rag on it, like, oh man, these drums like feel like there's they're always not the finished ease or games. something. Yeah, the ease yeah, that's what it is. Yeah, pretty plain. These drums are just so tasteful. I mean, you could have a drummer play this exact part, and it would be, you know, he's definitely not going to be showing off. 
enough. Uh, just enough fills here and there. Um, but yeah, it really locks in well with the bass, and it adds a level of excitement that really brings this rock energy well, home. And I mean... I think it's like the fact that it can even get close to that is a marvel. I mean, you're you're taking an 8-bit noise channel drum part and yeah. taking it as a real... Like, it's incredible that they're even getting remotely in that universe. Most games right? of this era were not able to do that. So this is like... This is masterful drum writing. And the fact yeah. that it feels so performed... Um, obviously, it could be more show-offy, but I think it was probably smart not to because it doesn't really sound that amazing if it's isolated. Like, you know, yeah. it's it's a white noise channel and a really crummy sampler. But I think when it's blasting in the background of all these Absolutely. really loud biting squares, it kind of feels like this intentional, like, punk rock distorted sound. So true. Well, let's move ahead three years into the future on the same system. For the NES, that is a long time, and things changed a lot. This is one of the most advanced NES soundtracks. It's absolutely amazing. It's Gimmick, and it's composed by Masashi Kageyama and Naohisa Morota. And we're going to play a track called Identity Believer. And what's really amazing about this soundtrack, it's a Sunsoft game. So it does utilize Sunsoft bass. Uh, which is kind of rare for the NES, but it also has really wonderful, really some of the very best DPCM drum samples too. And it's so it's doing double duty. Sometimes it's bass, sometimes it's snare drum. It's moving back and forth. It also utilizes the great NES technique here of triangle support on the snare drum to get that beefy sound. Yeah. So there's a lot of really impressive technical things that are happening here. On top of that, it's an amazing drum part. It's just a great drum track. It's absolute, it absolutely belongs on any like VGM playlist of, of great drums. This, is, this has got to be on there. It's Identity Believer from Gimmick. You guys are listening to Identity Believer from Gimmick, composed by Kageyama and Morota. Amazing NES music here, amazing implementation, switching from the bass to the snare drum. Uh, sometimes we have different snare tones, which how cool is that, that we can have multiple snare tones on the NES? Yeah. Uh, it makes it feel like this is a really big living and breathing band again. I love the tones. I love how they're utilizing the hardware. I love the part. It's a great tune. The drums are really groovy. Again, very tasteful. They're not showing off, um, but they don't feel held back at all. And that, I think, is kind of kind of rare for the system and very impressive. Well, and something that's just a hallmark of NES music, and I think why so many chip tuners still love to write for it, with the um, conventional limitations is because you have to be so clever with trading off between your channels. And so you have to compose a bass line that fits around the drums, not at the same time. And right. you have to utilize the channels in a way where you never stop the illusion, you never break the groove. But there really is this physical limitation of, you know, you can only have so many of these sounds simultaneously. And it's amazing to hear an example like this, a piece that's just so musical, so expressive, so confident, bursting with energy, yet all of the, the whole rhythm section just hangs together and feels so solid in a way that no other game music of this era did. I mean, I, I know yeah. I said that about the last track, but like, that's because Konami and Sunsoft, I mean, they were really the best when it came to this specific kind of thing. I'm not saying that like they mm -hmm. necessarily that this is definitively, you know, the best music on the NES, but I think when it comes to implementation of rhythm section elements, I don't think you can beat you know Sunsoft and Konami 
to maybe a little lesser of yeah. an extent. Yeah, I mean this this soundtrack fires on a level that <laughs> really no other NES soundtrack does. It's very quirky, and part of it is like the musical style and compositional style of Gimmick. There is truly nothing else like it. And part of that is these composers. But yeah, the implementation too, and the and the feel, the groove. It's just such a fun and colorful soundtrack. Uh, now I'm excited with these next two to dig in a little more into the weeds on on drums here. And one of the ways that we're going to do that is uh, this is an SNES track, and then after that it's going to be a Genesis track. And eventually the drums are going to come up in the mix, so you guys will will be able to really clearly hear how in the 16-bit era these sound designers were able to get drum sounds, pretty convincing drum sounds. And I'm excited just to talk a little bit more about drums as well. So let's move on to a really outstanding drum track for the Super Nintendo. I was going through so many great soundtracks and I got to this one and yeah, I just think it's a great example. It's Axley, which is a great score, but this is Cosmos um, and it's composed by Taro Kudo. Let's take a listen. We are listening to Cosmos from Axley. Now, Carl, oh, we've talked so for years on the podcast about your relationship to music really beginning with your love and obsession of the drums and the drum yeah. set. Uh, you, I remember you got your first drum kit when you were nine years old for your ninth birthday. <laughs> I do yeah. have a memory of that morning. That's and, crazy. You know, it's that was really a gateway to your entire musical journey. Um, it was a life-changing moment for sure. Yeah. So that's kind of why the really the inspiration for doing this episode in the first place is to give you an opportunity to use that knowledge that you have yeah. from the performance side because you've been the drummer in so many bands of different genres and different styles. And I'm so curious if we can apply some of that knowledge and perspective to deconstructing a drum part like this, which to my ears is just so technical sounding and Mm -hmm. is doing a really strong job at, you know, implying existing drum techniques. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, what's really cool about this track, I love, first of all, I love the use of panning. One thing we have to say is that If you wanted to play this exact drum part, it would be impossible because there are two channels uh, dedicated to drums actually happening on the SPC 700 on this particular track. And so the hi-hat is remaining constant while the tom fills are happening. And so that's the one thing that wouldn't be possible, right? So if we're rocking out on the hi-hat and we're going to do a tom fill, we would have to move away from the hi-hat because we only have two two hands. Now you could obviously do some clutch work, which is when you use the hi-hat pedal. And part of some of the stuff, without giving too much away, we're going to be able to talk a lot more next week about the real drum kit and stuff. So look forward to that. But yeah, so, so part of this beat would be impossible to play. But that's what's so cool is they're they're not writing it for a real drummer. They're writing it for the Super Nintendo. And like I said, they're dedicating at least two channels at all times to the drums. The the really cool panning of those of those tom fills kind of remind me of like overdubbed fills. So mm. in that sense, you could perform this because you would just play the straight up beat, have the hi-hat there the whole time, and then you would go in and you'd overdub those do a lot of those offbeats kind of jungly uh, tom fills. And so, yeah, I think it's a really exciting track, and the drums add a lot of momentum. The toms are a really interesting kind of sub-art form of, of the drums. When to use the toms, are you going to use them for a fill? And basically a fill is any time that you're transitioning from one section to another, and you want some sort of exciting uh 
you know, momentum to let the listener know that, hey, we're going to move to this new section. Um, but you can also incorporate the toms in your actual beat. So uh, typically when we think of a drum beat, we think of kick, snare, and hi-hat, or kick, snare, and ride, right? Uh, those are the elements that are happening all at the same time and that are, they're fairly consistent and they're driving, right? Right. Um, we could also add some toms into our beat. Uh, and whenever that happens, it just more often than not creates this jungle feel. If we think of the tune Sing, 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 or if we think of like Donkey Kong Country music, right? Just a lot of really heavy tom-based beats. Uh, and so you're getting that with this track, but you're still getting this really, like Will said, precise kind of technical prog rock drumming pattern. Uh, and it's, it's just a really cool mix, and they didn't have to do that. So I really love how the drums on this track really kind of go above and beyond. And it's one of the most exciting uh, parts of the track. I don't know about you, Will. Oh, absolutely it is. It's is one of the real appeals. And I think in all the tracks that we've played, you know, we're celebrating the drums, but the drums are just indicative of the rhythmic energy of the music. Absolutely. And that's part of what chiptune music has to do is often it's like the bass lines are way more melodic and intricate than a real electric bass or upright bass line would be. It's just like that here. Because it needs to imply more than just that. In the drums, Mm -hmm. it's the same thing. It's like the entire groove of the whole piece is also part of the quote-unquote drums of the track because there are just so few elements and resources. And so it's yeah. these are unique examples where the drums are so explicit, they're so emulating, you know, specific playable patterns, but as Carl identified, you know, these aren't strictly speaking, you know, technically playable. But I also think because of that it makes it evoke specific genres and styles to me it sounds more like you know electronic or sampled pop music drums yeah. of the 80s and 90s yeah the, the the other aspect will and i hope you agree with me on this is i actually think uh i know these these drum samples aren't the best the snes saw some better ones to be to be quite frank however i think that the actual part and the implementation part of that is the classic snes delay I think it's very expressive. And part of why these drums are so expressive is the use of dynamics. So I I actually invite you guys at some point to go back and listen to this track again and listen to the dynamic changes that the drums have. There's this great section when it's doing this, um, it's doing these kind of build-up hits. And that's doubled on the snare and the floor tom, which is very accurate to what a drummer would be doing. That's a really common thing when you're doing kind of building up hits to lead to some sort of chorus or something. And so... With the SNES, they have such fine volume control that it really feels like a drummer that's doing this crescendo on the snare and the floor tom. And so I think, yeah, the use of dynamics is one of the things that makes the drum so expressive in this track. And yeah, don't don't let those crappy samples uh, fool you. This is a really outstanding drum track. Yeah, I completely agree. And, you know, a lot of these tracks, I feel like I I have been hearing in a completely different context, particularly That's the gimmick awesome. and Spark Mandrill. Um, I just yeah. forgot how intricate rhythmically some of those things are. And it just yeah. leads to the music feeling that much more expressive. I think that, you know, often on this podcast, we celebrate melody and we celebrate, I think we do celebrate groove a fair bit. And we'd like yes. to break down and analyze and talk about the production. But really, I think one of the reasons why there's so much groove based music in early video games is that there, it was such a narrow, you know, avenue, such a narrow medium with which to express any emotion whatsoever. And one of the things it could do well was create rhythmic patterns that were, if anything, it was like an advantage. They were so punchy and digital and precise and loud. Well, It was actually, I would argue that it was necessary to do that because, okay, let's let's just talk about the noise channel, right? You have this ability to have these different noise, you know, settings where you can have a lower pitched noise followed by a higher pitched noise. And the first thing that I think anyone working on that would do is, okay, I'm going to make this lower one evoke a kick drum. I'm going to make the higher one evoke a snare. And if I make a rhythmic pattern that goes, boom. We already are bringing the listeners into the world of this of this backbeat, this rock beat. So it's such a, an, a, I think, vital way 
of kind of establishing, okay, I know you're hearing these primitive sounds, but imagine a band actually grooving away on this. Yeah, and I think even when evoking other types of music, it's like one of my favorite NES soundtracks is Air Fortress, which is going for a very gallant, you know, regal orchestral sound for the most part. Um, yet it still utilizes the noise channel to evoke the sound of a snare drum and to mm-hmm. kind of put you in that kind of martial military headspace, as do so many games. Like one of my, a great example is the uses in like Sonic Two, for instance. Yeah, um, flying. Yeah, the yeah, the, the wing, wing fortress, fortress zone, yeah. zone where it's like that same snare drum sound that and we've also been timpani for the there. Same score, yeah, is like now being used in an entirely different context it's but it's call. still the importance of and one more shout remains. out to next week guys next week hopefully we can have some really interesting examples of drums that might go in some directions that may surprise you so look forward to that i'm really excited to move on to a genesis example and it's a it's a type of drumming it's a drumming technique that we've touched on before we're going to also touch on it next week as well um, but i'm excited to show you this amazing track one of the best uses of drums of any genesis score i mean it's a silly score it's a little on the short side but the drums are phenomenal <laughs> it's rolling thunder three and we don't know the real names of these composers the silly aliases they gave were rose and dick boy <laughs> this is bad opinion from rolling thunder three drums a little louder in the mix here guys okay so i absolutely adore this track and especially the drums it's so incredibly funky i also love the samples they sound really badass here some of the best genesis drums for sure uh so this track utilizes what's called a linear beat or a lot of times it's a linear funk beat is kind of how it's known it's used in a lot of funk music it can be used for other genres um there is quite a bit of VGM and Genesis VGM that, that utilize it. However, not, not as much as you would think because linear means that you're only playing one surface at a time. And that counts for symbols and skins, right? Everything, right? One thing at a time. The reason why some Genesis examples aren't actually linear when you think they might be is because the noise channel, the PSG noise channel, is more often than not what's used for hi-hat. Uh, at least to evoke hi-hat, right? And that's going to most of the time be driving away all the time. So that's not linear. So even if you just have one DAC sample channel and it's switching kick, snare, kick, kick, snare, tom, that's linear. But because we have that noise channel rocking away on the hi-hat, it's no longer linear. So in this case, what's really special is for Rolling Thunder 3, they also have a hi-hat sample. That is so rare. There's not a lot of Genesis scores that have that bothered to do symbol samples, right? And it's funny because it doesn't sound that distinguishable from the noise channel because of <laughs> exactly. how compressed. However, what they can do is they can crank up the volume so it's like basically distorted, right? And they can pan it. So that hi-hat is is coming in on the far left channel on this track. Uh the snare and the kick are not. They're coming down the center and so that First of all, it was a great choice because we're making it feel like a drum kit where the cymbal's over here, the snare's over here, right? Um, But yes, this is truly linear. So if you listen to this beat again, and you guys will play it up in the background here for you guys again, um, it's this kind of a beat. So every single moment, for example, whenever the snare hits, the hi-hat is not playing. Whenever the kick hits, nothing else is playing. Whenever there's a hi-hat playing, nothing else is playing. If you slowed it down, you would really find, this is what it would sound like. That is kind of the approach of the drum beat on this one. It's truly linear. It could be absolutely playable by a real drummer, and it would sound just as funky as this. 
Uh, I've played a lot of beats like this before. I really love this kind of a feel. And so I think it's amazing that they were able to achieve this on the Genesis. Carl, I'm curious how often, that, that was great, by the way. Thank you for sharing that. I sure. know that you employ this technique a lot as a drummer, and I know you've yeah. employed it in original music of yours, but how often have you implored this kind of technique in chiptune music or retro VGM style music of this sort? I have done it uh, a fair amount, and it's funny, the times that I can think of that I've done it have been on Duffel Mask on Genesis chiptunes. <laughs> so <laughs> I have actually done uh, chiptunes where I, where I did this approach, where I sampled the hi-hat as well. Maybe I'll sample a crash, or I'll sample everything, you know, anything that I can possibly sample because I like that sound. I've done other ones when I've used the noise channel. but uh, So yeah, I've done this at least a couple times where I do have... Uh, truly a linear beat but one of the things that's kind of fun for me actually is to disguise that to make it so it doesn't even feel linear and and most people listening they're not going to have that terminology and that's fine it doesn't matter um, but you just want it to still feel full and constantly active um, and so so that can be a fun challenge and part of that is just how the levels come together if you have a loud bass and a really kind of overdriven guitarish lead um, and you have the drums right in the mix, you can have a linear beat and you might not even notice that it's linear because, you know, when the kick is hitting, you can't really tell that the hi-hat isn't hitting in some way. So yeah, there's some advantages to that. But yeah, every once in a while, I will do that. I think it gives a certain clarity to the part because yeah. there's absolutely no muddiness. And I think that's a great yeah. uh, concept for arranging in general. Like oh, if you so think true. about well, orchestrating a line, there you could have let's say there's an incessant eighth note or 16th note subdivision and pulse right well you could have one group of instruments just constantly bash that away which is perfectly valid and done all the time yeah or you could find ways of trading off between multiple instruments and you get an entirely different mm -hmm. feeling and then will i'm sure you've heard this before in in a rock context or a funk context or r&b this is so important for an arrangement how many great grooves and maybe some of you aren't aware of why this is but how many great grooves are great because of the space that allows the backbeat, the snare drum, to be the only thing happening in that moment. That mm. That is kind of the same thing we're talking about here with Rolling Thunder 3. Uh, I'm going to do a quick beatbox of that. So imagine I'm, I'm you're hearing bass and drums. There's a lot of grooves that have this kind of feel. If you listen to that, every single time that I was doing a snare backbeat, the bass was not playing. That is so common for so many different kinds of music, and it actually makes a groove that feels more full, ironically, uh, and just funkier. So that's kind of uh, one way that the drums can kind of interlock with the rest of the band. That's amazing. I just want you to beatbox for the rest of <laughs> this episode. Like it's It's so informative and instructing because I think it's... It's important to think about that as a concept, not just when creating drum parts, but in composition in general. You want clarity. You want whatever musical ideas are there to have their little moment in the sun. So when they're active and moving, and even if it's just two milliseconds, when they get <laughs> their little moment to come out, you kind of want everyone to step back and then they totally. get their chance to shine. If everyone's shouting at once, Obviously, there are times when that can be a useful effect, particularly right. maybe in transitions or something where you want to build up and have something cacophonous. That's almost yep. like what happens in a fill or a drum solo. But those are very specific contexts in which you're trying to create that feeling. And so having these intricate parts that work together, I think is what I'm getting from what you're saying is sort of the core of not just a great drum part, but a great rhythm section that locks together all right well now for something completely different let's move to our intermission segment for today's episode all right becca take it away hey marcato fam my name is becca and i'm so excited to be on the podcast today carl reached out to me about doing a segment on music education and video game music two things that i'm very passionate about carl and i went to college together at winona state he studied music business and i was music education we had a couple of classes together and then we also played in band and orchestra. 
We both ended up in the Twin Cities doing our own music things, but in the last few years we've done a few projects together, such as his album Sonic-esque, where I played flute on one of the live tracks, and we performed together this past VGM Con in April. I've always loved video games and their soundtracks since I was a kid, but I only recently found this community, and I'm so glad that I did. So that's a little bit about my VGM background. Like I said, I'm a music teacher. I teach elementary music, so that's kindergarten through fifth graders. This coming school year will actually be my 10th year of teaching, which is kind of scary to think about. I love teaching elementary music because there's so much variety to what I get to teach. For example, each of my lessons has seven components. Reading music, composing their own music, improvising, guided listening, moving, playing instruments, and of course, singing. Because I teach in so many different ways, or I'm going to call them modalities, it's sure to reach all the different learning styles that kids have. I follow my district curriculum of teaching certain concepts in certain grades. So for example, half notes are taught in second grade. But how I teach each of those concepts is really up to me. So I love the creative freedom I have in my job. This is where I bring in things that I feel are important for students to know about, such as multicultural music and folk dances, but also things that I'm passionate about, such as video game music. I want to go through the seven modalities that I mentioned and ways that I have incorporated video game music into my music teaching. This is not an exhaustive list, it's just what I've come up with so far. I'm assuming that all of this is acceptable under fair use copyright laws, but who even understands copyright laws? (laughs) So um, if any of the listeners here are music teachers too, I would love to hear your ideas or if you try any of these things next year. I'm sure most of you are not music teachers, so I hope that I can still make this segment interesting for you. Let's start with singing. At this age, children's vocal ranges are about middle C to the octave above that, so the C that's in the staff, and then of course it increases as they age. We teach solfege, which is labeling each pitch of the musical scale with like do, re, mi, fa, so, etc., Um, For a sight singing exercise, I put up a pattern they've never seen before and they have to figure out how to sing it based on their knowledge of intervals or which line or space the note is on. So one song I've used is Epona's song. It's really nice for third graders who are working on high do because the pattern is do la so, do la so, do la so, la so. You could use any diatonic song and take a pattern from it to work on solfege and sight singing. A lot of the Ocarina of Time melodies would be good for this because they are short and simple. One idea for reading standard music notation, and again, this would be sight reading, is to take the rhythms from a song and remove it from the staff so you're just isolating the rhythms and working on clapping. Um, An example lesson that you could do with fifth graders who are working on dotted quarter notes would be the song Rosalina in the Observatory. You could take the main melody and isolate the rhythms and just have them figure out how to clap it. You could also then play the song and have them clap that pattern when it comes up in the song. For the next part, I'm going to combine the writing and the improvising components and just use the same idea. So we're going to talk about the song Route 201 from Pokemon Diamond and Pearl. This song is in C major and in 4-4 time, which is perfect for our instruments because they don't have any sharps or flats. So give students certain parameters to work with, such as you must start and end with Do, or you must use three different kinds of rhythms, or you must use the new note we just learned. And then they can take that and either write out their own B part um, that would play during the B section of the song, or they could improvise their own B part. Students would use the notes C, D, E, G, and A, which are the pentatonic notes, to compose or play with. And then you would do that along with the song. For the listening component, I've done several lessons with this because it's kind of the easiest one. So I'll just talk about one. One lesson that I've done is compare four songs from different game levels and have them guess what kind of environment it's from, like snowy, forest, desert, spooky. They then have to use vocabulary words and describe why they think it's from that level. Then I show them the answers, like a picture from that level, and I play the song again. This might also be good to discuss like musical stereotypes as well. 
An idea I had for movement is to take a song that has repeating sections and a clear form, which a lot of video game music has because it was meant to be looped, uh, but have students create a dance using common folk dance moves such as swing your partner or go in or out of a circle or some formation, uh, do a hand clapping thing. This would be entirely student created. You could do it in small groups or you could do it as a whole class, which might be a little chaotic, but fun. Um, I thought a fun one would be to do Megalovania because it's upbeat and kids love this song. You could also try a more rubato song, like something Austin Wintry has written in uh, Journey. And you could let students improvise movements, trying to match their bodies to the music, like show different levels of your body or show big or small movements. Um, anything that they can uh, try to try to mimic the music with their body. And the seventh and final modality is playing instruments. Typical instruments that you see in an elementary school can vary, but they are usually like xylophones, recorders, ukuleles, keyboards, and unpitched percussion. This part would depend on what you have at your disposal, but you could add any unpitched percussion patterns to a video game song and play with it, or you could write your own arrangement. I want to cite another music educator for this idea, Brooke Ferd, who is an amazing oboe player and general woodwind player. She goes by Medlix. Um, she shared this idea to write an arrangement to the museum theme from the Animal Crossing series because it has that great repeated bass line and it's very simple. You could break it into different, like the different sections that you have for your instruments. Those were just seven ideas I've had about incorporating VGM into elementary music teaching. I'm constantly thinking of new ideas, and I would love to hear from any of you what you thought about them. I want to advocate for music teachers to explore this untapped treasure trove of musical experiences kids have with video games. This kind of music has changed my life and helped make me the musician that I am today. And I would have loved to learn about this and be taught this in school. Obviously, not all kids play video games, but when you can make a connection with even one kid that's part of their culture and it's a song that they know, it's a game that they know, it is worth it. Thank you so much for allowing me the space to geek out about two things that I love, music education and video games. I hope that you found it interesting too. Thank you to Carl and Will for letting me be on the podcast today. I really appreciate it. Um, if you have any questions or comments, I would love to hear from you on Discord or social media. Um, so thank you again and take care, everybody. See ya. Thanks so much, Becca. It's just great Thanks to have these new segments on our show. Totally. And we're so incredibly fortunate to have a wonderful community of friends and listeners and uh, so many people in our lives that are incredible musicians doing all sorts of wonderful things with VGM. Yeah, and they're all so nice and there's so much passion, so much intelligence and thought and talent. So yes, thank you so much, Becca, for that wonderful segment. Yeah, I would love to have more stuff like this. I mean, to all of our listeners out there we want to keep this kind of content coming so if you Absolutely. have an idea for a specialized segment that Send you us think an email. you could contribute to the podcast we'd love to hear about it because i think one of the things that's very important for both carl and i moving forward in the podcast and something that really excites us is the idea of interactivity right video games yes. are all about interaction and podcasts are not really an interactive medium but through discord and through our social media channels hopefully you can have some interaction with us and contribute things to the show absolutely and that's something that has been such a blessing over the years as we've been able to include that yeah so definitely drop us an email if you happen to have an idea for that well i'm really excited to move on to this next example this is a little more obscure there's probably a lot of you out there that might not have heard of this arcade game it was actually a jalico arcade game came out in 1992 it's called soldom and it has killer drums. <laughs> this track is called Great Excitement Under the Tree. It was composed by Atsuyoshi Isamura and Yasuyuki Suzuki. Let's take a listen.
You guys are listening to a killer track, short and sweet. It's Great Excitement Under the Tree. And yeah, Great Excitement indeed. This is from Soldom, which is an arcade game composed by Isamura and Suzuki. And the drums are killer on this. My favorite part is that again, that really great dynamic contrast happening in this track. There's some really exciting fills, some great buildups, some (laughs) just good snare rolls, great beat overall. What's fun about today's episode is, you know, we're encouraging everyone to focus on the drums but in a way it's hard to do because the composition here is so strong it's a killer track every track we've heard today and honestly it's like i was listening to the score and i knew right away the drums were killer because as soon as the first track played it was like wow this i gotta include one from this but i just couldn't help that this track just was also a banger in every sense of the word Uh, and that happened multiple times today so yeah amazing drums on this arcade drums that was one of the most exciting like facets of of early drums like fake drums in vgm especially if you think about the era when on the nes or on the turbo graphics or on these other consoles um there would be plenty of examples with very by the books drums especially if you're doing noise channel drums right you might just literally hear nothing else and that there's nothing wrong with that but the arcade allowed so many more channels that could be dedicated to drum samples like this one if i'm not mistaken it has a great fm sound chip uh that all the other musical material is in but then there's a sample chip uh that is just dedicated multiple sample channels to all these great drums uh drum sounds so yeah i think the arcade is definitely home to a lot of really cool drums something about this track that i think is so strong and again the drums personify it but they're really the biggest part of it probably is the sense of taste in balance the balance between a consistent dependable stable groove that is not necessarily dancing but driving steady with predictable elements yet has all of this you know burgeoning percolating ideas that are just breaking out you know and there's like these little the thing that i love about the drum part in this track is it reminds me of like a jazz or a big band drummer playing more of a slightly funkier fusion track because right. the way that he's setting up all the hits is a very big band thing that that is like when i studied big band drumming in college like my professor like he was always talking about that like how you set up these hits like it's your job to telegraph this moment and to make it more exciting and that's what the you know the fake drums here are definitely doing yeah it's interesting because i sort of have mixed feelings about that as a technique like i think there are some genre it's almost i feel about that it's not for every genre (laughs) i feel about that the way you feel sometimes about like classical singing where it's like i i I appreciate the technique and the artistry and there are certain forms of music where it couldn't be any other way but sometimes in my vgm i like a little more straightforwardness and what i like about a track like this is i feel like it's riding that balance it has enough of those moments where it's setting up hits like particularly the da 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 where it's like the doing it's not too flashy it's it's, not too busy and i feel this way like a lot of great pop music arranging like one of my favorite pop music albums ever was uh the last bruno mars album mm-hmm. um and one of the things that i love about it is just the way that the drum and bass parts are constructed because it's that perfect balance of like stability predictability but also those moments of you know breaking you out of the groove and doing something to disrupt you yeah dude it totally it totally depends on the vibe you're going for the emotion the genre there's so much in in that yeah and that was like I said, that was just a big band thing. That was that's not something that you'd want to. You could bring it over to like punk rock a little bit. You hear like if you listen to like Green Day or something, like you can hear you know him setting up hits in a similar way. But yeah, it really depends on on the genre. All right, this is cool. We're moving ahead into the future into the PS One, and there's a lot of great fake drums happening in the PS One era. And this is one example. It's from Ace Combat Two. The track is Invoke.
guys listening to Invoke from Ace Combat 2. This came out in 97, so we're only jumping ahead a little bit. Um, but it kind of feels like definitely a new era for sequenced drums here. We get this, uh, you know, some people call it a nostalgia beloved era. The PS1, that's everything soaked in reverb. It's super cheesy. Uh, it definitely is a vibe. Whether or not you like that vibe is kind of up to you. Um, this is a great score, and this is a great drum part. I think the sound of it is, is very cheesy. Um, yeah. But... But it's a great drum part here. Yeah, it is I a love great drum part. Love the ride bell. Ding, ding. The ride bell is this the middle part of the ride symbol that it sounds kind of like a cowbell, and so you can use it as a really expressive, loud, biting kind of a bell sound. And a lot of times it's used on the offbeats one and two and three and. You know what's kind of an interesting um, facet about this particular period is once you get to this era, the approach to creating a drum part like this functionally doesn't have to be any different from how it would be now i mean the samples are better the technology has improved but a drum part doesn't need to conform to you know sounds on an internal chip in the same way um and when you can have kind of like red book quality audio yeah uh, even if you're using cheap crappy samples it's like you can make whatever you can fit on that wave file which can mm-hmm. be anything and everything yeah the, well the one thing i wanted to quickly say about the actual drum part here i think this beat is really cool and really unique actually it doesn't uh for this one section it doesn't have a traditional backbeat on two and four this one section i'm talking about is this kind of a beat boom boom ga, boom boom ga, boom boom ga, boom boom ga. so the and of two is what the snare is first hitting and that is a really cool way to subvert our expectations and to make a groove that is a little more challenging and a little there's more tense kind of there's just a lot more tension happening in that whole section musically too so i think that drum beat is really tasteful and again it's not one that you would typically hear in a lot of tracks and definitely not in a lot of vgm so yeah i think the drums on this track are they sound like they were sequenced uh by a real drummer in my opinion something that's funny to me though is like the the style of this production sounds so much older than this actually was like this does not sound like 1997 to me this sounds like 1987 like (laughs) Like, it's so cheesy and synthy and like not that that stuff didn't exist but it existed in like at home exercise vhs tapes like it right and i think it to me in something that i've always we've been kind of transparent about this but like what prevents me or you know really prevented me from uh, getting super into the early Redbook audio stuff of the PS1 mm-hmm. and the Sega Saturn was a lot of that production, that really bad reverb and cheesy quality that doesn't have the same kind of appeal of the cheesiness of the Super Nintendo, let's say. To me, it it puts video games in this box of like something mm. to not be taken seriously in a way that no, just I get for that. me i feel like the chip stuff doesn't because that's almost more like a technological yeah, I think marvel that there are times when i when i definitely have felt that too luckily for me for this track and maybe it's because i'm focusing on the drums today and on the drum part um i was able to see past that and really enjoy what was laid down here despite the the sounds so yeah i was i was really enjoying this track particularly i gotta say the drum part. I probably wouldn't have picked it on a lot of other playlists other than <laughs> this this topic. So, okay, we're going to move ahead a little bit more into the future, to the early 2000s, uh, to a GameCube example. This is a console that I thought, oh, it'd be interesting to play like a fake drums example on the GameCube. And this is a, a, a game that's all about drums because it's a Donkey Kong jungle beat. And so I thought that was, first of all, just a good choice spiritually, right? Um, but also I just wanted to hear kind of like a typical 2004-era approach of the use of drums, it's good. This is Mihiro Yakoda here, which is crazy. Uh, it's it's good. He does a good job of implementing drums here. They don't sound particularly good, but the part is pretty good. It's not anything to write home about. I just wanted to showcase, uh, you know, a fair, honest example of the 2004 era in video games when when it comes to fake drums. So this is versus Hog from Donkey Kong Jungle Beat.
You guys are listening to Versus Hog and some really cool things that happen in the drums. One of my favorite moments is when it switches drum kit sounds uh, to an electronic kind of breakbeat kit. That was a cool moment. I also really liked uh, how he's very intentionally and thoughtfully here sequencing this and implementing it with the crashes. He has a few different crash cymbal samples that he uses at specific times, and they're panned in different ways, which is a nice effort to make it feel like a real drum kit, to make it feel more expressive. Uh, One of those is kind of like a China crash, at least that's what it's trying to evoke. Uh, So I think, yeah, the use of, of picking those samples and how he's mixing them and panning them that's something that we never really talk about on, on this podcast. So, yeah, we're getting into the weeds of talking about drums here. But I think this is a really good example of he had this, he, you know, he didn't have the budget for real players on this. Okay, so it's 2004. He had to make do with, with what he had. And I think he did a really good job here. Yeah, I mean, it's it's very unpretentious music. It's very unpretentious production and arranging. Mm-hmm. To me, it actually ages better than the Ace Combat 2 thing, even it's though in General some ways Mitty. it's objectively worse. But again, it's like, yeah. it's more charming and earnest, and it feels like it's putting all of its weight on the composition and not yes. the production in any way, well, where it's like no production in some ways is almost better than bad production. <laughs> yeah, Will was mentioning that. You're hearing the foreshadowing of, of some of the things that he would eventually dabble with in Mario Galaxy. You're Particularly, hearing that this is coming from the same mind. Yeah, the his harmonic language, the shapes of his melodies, some of the chords, really interesting extended dissonant harmonies that he uses. Yeah. He would implore in the Galaxy games. And what yeah. I love is hearing, like the Donkey Kong Jungle Beat score is, has a lot of dark, weird twistedness to it. It does. And what's amazing to me about like Mario Galaxy is like he was sort sort of restrained and pushed and kind of encouraged hopefully by Koji and others into the exact sound of what those games needed to be. And it only could have come from his brain, but it also like needed the pressure of these other elements to bring that out of him because totally this while you can kind of hear it it's so different it's like alan silvestri with romancing the stone versus back to the future or yeah something. for sure so so guys we have one more example today of fake drums and really now if you think about it this is from going to be from the ds it's our last example other than the playout. Um, and after that, there really isn't much more to talk about when it comes to fake drums in VGM, because even by this point, we're starting to have a lot of scores uh, that would have real drums or would have, at the very least, very convincing drum samples. And so, so yeah, this is kind of the end of our journey. We've come all the way from the NES, and this is an outstanding use of fake drums here. The DS had a kind of similar process to the Super Nintendo when it comes to multiple different sample channels and you have to dedicate some of them to drums. Uh, But this is a great score. It's Bomberman Land Touch. I just love the score, but I really love the drumming and the drum sequencing, I should say, on this DS score. It's composed by Shohei Bando and Ichiro Shimakura. Let's take a listen to BGM 20. So good. Amazing drumming here. Very subtle and tasteful and expressive. If you're a drummer, I mean, you're going to be wowed by this uh, because I know that this is all fake and this all had to be, you know, put into these little sample channels and stuff. But there's like these little expressive ghost notes. That's when you play the snare really softly uh, to add texture. There's little snare rolls. Really interesting syncopation. It's this kind of funky jazz playing just really really impressive again the composition is just killer period so there's a lot to love here um but just outstanding fake drumming god this is such an impressive track and this i mean this kind of stuff gets to the core of what i love most about game music is it's just like it's a piece of music that is so meticulously constructed to make you happy or just honestly not happy but to make you smile you know great music video game music of this 
approach, which I consider to be the classic heart and soul of VGM. Me too. It's, it's in that vein of like, it is meticulously constructed to make you smile. And it's, it's some of the most selfless music I can think of. And I can't think of anything more selfless as a, you know, musician <laughs> or programmer than like, you know, slowly and painfully putting in all those little details of a fake <laughs> drum part. Things yeah. that would, for a real drummer, it would be way easier for them to play it than to have to notate it, write mm-hmm. it down, or to have to program it into the computer. Like, right. luckily, we live in an era where things don't have to be explicitly written down or we're not recording something to tape. So you can be slow and meticulous and tweak things and slide MIDI notes around. And, Mm -hmm. you know, we have tools to assist us in these things, but it's also, we have to be humbled by the fact that so many of these techniques and styles you know they pre-existed any of that convenience so so much of the detail of this kind of style came not from composers but from performers from amazing drummers that were able to play with all this subtlety and nuance and now as composers in this modern era where we're expected to kind of produce and record everything we have to be a fan not only of composers but of performers and musicians of all sorts absolutely I'm really excited for next week, or I should say two weeks from now, everyone, for our part two episode. Yes, we're going to have a part two episode all about drums. And without giving too much away, look forward to maybe a different way of breaking down the drums uh, with me uh, and obviously Will. (laughs) And we're going to play some examples of real performed drums in VGM. Uh, And I think we're also going to talk a little bit about something that bridges the two worlds i think yes yes um, and that's yeah there's a lot to look forward to for it's the gonna part be cool two. it's gonna be a completely different vibe and, and look forward to that i love doing part twos so we want to one more time thank becca for that wonderful intermission segment yeah, thanks so thank much thank all of you for listening uh and i think that's about it got anything will no just to sort of stay tuned to all of our channels because i feel like really exciting stuff has been happening for you me and marty of late so um i just yeah it feels like a very exciting time and absolutely um i i'm looking forward to now that i'm wrapping up grad school being able to dedicate a little bit more time to you know marcotta brothers stuff yeah heck yeah and exploring more kinds of concept albums and pushing the boundaries beyond the kinds of things we've done. Dude, in the I past. can't wait for like this era of, you know, doing some more collaborations and some more projects with you uh, while you're out there. So yeah, there's going to be a lot of creativity. We'll be able to share. Yeah. With it's going to be awesome. Everyone uh, check out guys, my very recent uh, chiptune compilation. I just put out a bit more chips. Uh, I have, I the, love the cover <laughs> artwork by the way, <laughs> listening party for that. If you're listening to this this past Thursday, so go on my Bandcamp. You can check it out. Uh, yeah, I think that's it. We'll get out of your hair. We'll see you guys in two weeks. Uh, we're going to play you out with a great Genesis example again. We played in with, with a Super Nintendo, so we're playing out Genesis. A great example of drums. It's Hydrocity Act 2 from Sonic 3. My name is Carl Brueggemann. And I'm Will Brueggemann. Have a great week, everybody. Peace out. Peace out.